0: This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. I'm excited to get into this book for a variety of reasons, but, but really there's one central burden of why we picked this book to go through as a church. Now, and I want to kind of set us up for that by telling you a true story. Around the 1800s into the early 1900s, there lived a very successful businesswoman named Hetty Green. She was a genius financier I and mean, made a ton of money on Wall Street. She actually became the richest woman in America. It was incredible what she was able to do, especially when you consider the plight of women in her day. She faced tremendous challenges, but she overcame them and saw success in really amazing ways. She was a remarkable woman. However, she was also an incredible miser. She was not just cheap, she was cheap, cheap, cheap. She never washed, not even her hands, because she didn't want to pay for soap. She had one dress and one pair of undergarments that she also didn't wash, uh, and she didn't replace them until they had completely fallen apart. She once stayed up all night searching for a stamp that she had lost that cost about two cents. Unfortunately, these were not just harmless eccentricities, one day, her son hurt his leg. It was a simple fall that just needed to be stitched up. But she spent so much time trying to find a free clinic because she didn't want to pay for a doctor that his wound was not addressed for weeks, and it became infected, and his leg had to be amputated. She had a massive fortune. She was a very wealthy woman. But who she was and what she had did not inform how she lived. And I think sometimes we can be like Hetty, And we for, can forget who we are and the riches of what we have in Jesus and not know how to live out of the good of that. We can have an incredible wealth in him that we leave untouched. And we go through life experiencing things that we never should have to because we have all the spiritual blessings that we need in Christ. We're going through First Peter because we as a a pastoral team have a burden for us as a church to be reminded about the riches of what we have in Jesus and our identity in him. And how the riches of this identity is meant to change everything about how we go through this life. This letter was written by Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. But the fact that he wrote this letter is, in and of itself, an amazing testimony to the riches of God's grace. Because Peter was someone who had failed Jesus multiple times. When Jesus was arrested and Peter was confronted with the question, Are you also one of his followers? Peter denied his relationship with Jesus. says, I don't even know the man, and called down curses upon him. His fear of what people would think about him and what could happen to him overshadowed his love for Jesus and desire to be faithful to his Savior. But after Jesus died and rose again, Jesus found Peter. And Jesus forgave Peter and restored Peter and made Peter a leader in his church. But then, Peter failed again. And we read in the book of Galatians that he was preaching the gospel of Jesus that there is salvation by faith alone in him. But when some Jewish leaders showed up, once again Peter became afraid of what other people thought about him and so he changed his message to please their ears and he abandoned the true gospel. You'd think that would be the end of Peter. Forgiving one major failure is one thing, but now two and now one that affects a whole Church. That was not the end of Peter, because there is no end to the riches of God's grace. And so Peter is once again restored, and here he is, close to the end of his life, writing this letter as an encouragement to other Christians. Christians who, like Peter, were having pressure put on them to deny their faith in Jesus. Jesus. Peter gives a purpose for why he wrote this letter in his closing lines. He, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. I've written briefly to you, why? Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter wrote this letter to declare to these people the true grace of God and to exhort them to stand firm in it. And this exhortation was needed Because as we will see repeatedly throughout this letter, the people that Peter is writing to were experiencing tremendous suffering for their faith. Almost everyone they knew and everything about the culture in which they lived pushed against what they believed. There was a pressure to compromise their faith and to capitulate to the culture's values. And so Peter writes to them to stand firm in the grace of the new identity that they have in Jesus and to not sell out no matter how hard things become. We're going to start today by looking at just the opening two verses. But these opening two verses really set the theme and direction for the entire letter. So let's look together in 1 Peter chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. be multiplied to you. Would you bow your heads with me now in a word of prayer? God bless the preaching of his word. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that what you inspired Peter to write all those years ago, you have preserved throughout the ages for us today. God, I pray that you'd meet us as we begin our study in this letter. Would you speak to us? Lord, would you change us? May the riches of who you are and who we are in you become even more clear to us. Would you help us to live out the goodness of that? Lord would you help us to understand more about what is the true grace of God and how we can stand for a minute for your glory and for our good? Lord I pray you do this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So Peter starts his letter by giving a very unique message. Greeting. Greeting is actually not found in any other letter in the New Testament. He, he calls his readers exiles. And this identity of being exiles is one that Peter is going to come back to repeatedly throughout this letter. So, so here's a theme that really marks the entire book. And it's, it's going to be our big idea for today. By the riches of God's grace, we are no longer from this place. By the riches of God's grace, we are no longer from this place. My wife, Angie, made fun of me for making that rhyme. Um, But I think it's going to help you remember it better, so I went with it. I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, exiles a transformative identity. Exiles a transformative identity. Let me just give you a roadmap for where we're going this morning. We're going to see what it means to be an exile. Then we're going to see how we become exiles. And finally, we're going to see why we become exiles. So let's look at the first part of this. What 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 does it mean to be an exile? The word that's used for exile here means foreigner or stranger in a strange place. It's the idea that where you are is not where you are from. Now, at first glance, this could be taken literally. Peter could be writing to those who have been displaced from their homes and are living as exiles in these various regions that he names. Commentator Karen Jobes actually gives a very persuasive argument, I think, that these people that he's writing to were part of Emperor Claudius' campaign to kick out Christians from Rome, and so potentially they, they actually were had been exiled. They were away from their home. However, she writes that while this gives an explanation for why Peter is using this metaphor, it is unmistakably meant to be taken as a spiritual Metaphor. This will become obvious as we go throughout the letter, but we see it right here in these opening verses, uh, verses as he calls them exiles of the dispersion. Now the dispersion was a technical term used for the Jewish people who had been displaced in 587 BC during the Babylonian captivity of Israel. Some Jews have been taken to Babylon, but others have been dispersed to various other places outside of Palestine, and they were called the dispersion or the diaspora. However, that is not who Peter is writing to. He names regions that were not part of this dispersion at all. And throughout the letter, he references that he's writing both to Jews and to Gentiles. Gentiles is a categorical term used in the New Testament for anyone who is not a Jew. And so the dispersion that Peter is talking about cannot be the dispersion of the Jews since Gentiles are also being addressed. And it cannot be the exile of Christians from Rome because that wasn't called a dispersion. So what is this dispersion that Peter is referring to? Why why is he bringing it up? Well, I think we're given another hint when we see what he writes at the end of the book. This is what he says in some of the closing verses. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Now, this letter was written around 64 AD or so, give or take a couple years. If you know anything about history at that time, at that time, Babylon no longer existed. It was in ruins. And so every commentator, and I read 14 different people from a broad range of theological perspectives, every commentator says that Peter is using Babylon as a metaphor to talk about Rome. Let me read just one quote from you. Um, this is Brett McDonald. He says, for Christians, Rome represented an empire which stood opposed to the rule of God and thus enemies of Jesus. Babylon signified a similar position for the people of Israel. Babylon invaded Judah and took many people into exile as captives. At the end of his letter, Peter is saying that the people of Jesus should view themselves in a measure of continuity with the people of Israel. Just as the people of Israel suffered in exile by the hand of the Babylonians, Christians suffer spiritual exile by the hand of the Romans. And so what is going on here, by, by starting with talking about the dispersion at the beginning and Babylon at the end, what is being formed is what theologians would call an inclusio. An inclusio is a literary device where you put something at the beginning and something at the end that's meant to frame how you interpret and read the entire letter. They're bookends, if you will, that inform everything else that goes in between them. And so by starting by referencing the dispersion and by ending by referencing Babylon, Peter is showing that he intends his readers to see the historical exile of Israel that they went through back in 587 BC as a foreshadowing of these Christians' spiritual exile now. He is seeking to show that there's a a narrative of continuity between the people of God in Israel and the people of God now as his church. Peter also makes this continuity clear as he addresses them not just as exiles, but as elect exiles. That word elect means chosen, and just like the word exile links back to Old Testament Israelites. This is what God said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Israelites were God's chosen people. A distinction that marked them out from all other peoples. But here in 1 Peter, God's telling us that all Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, all Christians are part of God's chosen people, the elect. See, there's only one people of God, and it's always been a spiritual condition, not an ethnic designation. And so this explains why these people are called exiles and why we also should consider ourselves as exiles. We are part of the chosen people of God. And since God is not from here, so also his people are not from here. Every theme in Peter is going to keep coming back to this one controlling idea. This world is not our home. To be a Christian is to be a citizen of heaven, part of the chosen people of God, and therefore in exile here on earth. In other words, by the riches of God's grace, we are no longer from this place. Now, this does not mean that we should remain separate and aloof from this world or that we should feel a need to wage culture wars against our world. No, when the Israelites went into exile, they were told by God to do this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. They were told to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. We saw an excellent sermon on that last week rejoicing our city, how we are meant to do good to the places where God has sent us. And we're going to see it's a major theme in 1 Peter. He, he is saying, hey, you're going to live here as a spiritual exile, and as you do, seek the good of the place in which you temporarily live. But the point is that we are to understand that this place is only a place in which we temporarily live. This is not our forever home. And so why we should seek the good of it, we should not become assimilated to it, or act like this world is all that there is. It's a long story, but back in college, I had to spend a night at a rest area one time. It was not one of the best nights of my life. And, um, but, but I took some time to make it a bit more comfortable for myself and my fellow travelers. Call me OCD, but I didn't want to sleep with trash everywhere. And so I picked up the trash that was present, and I wiped down a lot of the common areas. It, it, It became a better rest stop because I was there. But I didn't change it to my mailing address. It was just a pit stop on my way home. Friends, we are to seek the good of this world, but we should not get confused and think that this is our residency. We are not people of this place. We are people of God. And so this is not our true home, but just a pit stop on our way home. What a comfort this must have been to these suffering Christians here in 1 Peter. As they're being persecuted for their faith, for not affirming things that their culture valued, for living in different ways. What a comfort this is meant to bring us as we can experience suffering for our faith. I know some of you have experienced relational tension. Some of you even had relationships that have become broken completely. There's been jobs lost or promotions not given, slander and false things said. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Persecution is part of what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's part of what we should expect, not because we're looking for it, not because we're being obnoxious people, but because we're not from here. And so we live differently than those who are from here. And there's a tension that gets created with that. And we can suffer for our faith. And we can suffer just by living in this sin-cursed, broken world. Tragedy can strike us here, can't it? Burdens can become heavy on our hearts. Sorrows can seep into the very marrow of our souls. But as real and as painful as our sadness can be, it shall pass. Because this world is not our permanent address. We are not residents of here. We are foreigners here who one day will go home. And so while we might experience tragedies in this life, we are not long for this life. This too shall pass. For the Christian, earth is as close to hell as we're ever going to get. This is what it means to be in exile. We're not from here, so we should seek the good of here, we, we should seek to make this world a better place while we spend our time here, but we should not adopt its values, nor think this is where we from, are from, nor, nor have sorrows in such a way that we act like this is all there is. Friends, we're not from here. We're going to go home to be where our Father is. That's what it means to be an exile. How do we become exiles, though? How does this, this take place in our life? Well, well, notice, Peter not only says that they are exiles, but makes it clear how it happens. Because he wants to make sure that it's clear to us that, that our identity as exiles is not an accident. but is actually a profound expression of God's special love. We're told in verse 2 that we are made elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Now this foreknowledge of God does not only mean that God knows the future. He does know the future. But God says this about his chosen people and, and his foreknowledge of them. He says this in the, through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Again, he, he foreknew them. And before you were born, I consecrated you. To be consecrated means to be set apart for a holy purpose. And so God says, before you were born, I knew you. Foreknowledge. What did he know? He knew what he was going to do to consecrate them as his chosen people. And so foreknowledge is speaking about what God knows about himself and his actions, not what God knows about us and our choices. God's foreknowledge does not mean that God saw you through the quarters of time and saw that you would pick him, and so he beat you to the punch and picked you. No, God's foreknowledge does not mean that he sees what we will do. It is him knowing what he has already chosen to do. God chooses people. He sets them apart. He consecrates them before they're even born. Right? So it has nothing to do with our merit, nothing to do with our worthiness, nothing to do with our holiness, nothing to do with I'm better than these other people, I figured something out that other people couldn't, I deserve this in some kind of way. No, God chooses people by grace. His unconditional favor. And so there's no reason for any of us to boast We cannot say, I am better because I found God. No, we can say, I am saved because God found me. He knew me. And so all the praise and glory goes to him. This this foreknowledge of God is not some kind of cold, clinical, factual knowledge, like maybe how we know know, the boiling temperature of water, the Pythagorean theorem. I don't know that anymore, but I used to. This is not factual knowledge. This is relational knowledge. Notice it says it is the foreknowledge of the Father. To be part of God's people is not to be part of some faceless mass of humanity, but to be known by God as his chosen child. My two sisters have both adopted children. Now, they love children in general, although one of them is a preschool teacher, so it probably depends on the day how much love she has in her heart for children. Uh, But they're very loving people, but there is a specific love, a, a special love for the child that they chose to adopt. It's not that they don't love others. It's that they have a special love for the one that they decide to bring home. Friend, if you're a Christian, it is because God has a special love in his heart for you. And if you're here and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, I believe it is not by chance that God has you listening to this. Out of all the things that you could be doing, out of all that took place for you to be listening to this right now, that is God's heart of love for you, calling out to you to come to know him, and I pray that you would. I pray today be the day you put your faith in Jesus. God's love for his people, it's a special love. It is the foreknowing love of the Father. Who have come to know him, what? In the sanctification of the Spirit. We're made elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. The word sanctification means to be holy. It's actually the same word as consecrated. And the Bible uses it sometimes to describe the process of growing in our Christian character, growing in godliness, growing in our personal holiness. That's known as progressive sanctification. But there's nothing progressive about the sanctification that is being talked about here. The verse says it is the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit's sanctification. And so how sanctified is the Holy Spirit? I'll give you a hint. His name is Holy Spirit. He is fully holy because he is fully God. He is therefore fully sanctified. And so the sanctification that is being talked about here is not the progressive sanctification of ourselves that is ongoing throughout life. It, It is the reality that being chosen by God means that we are now indwelt by his very spirit. And therefore we are called holy, sanctified people in him. Not because we are perfect and always do the right thing, but because the spirit of glory that was present on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, that filled the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, verse 9, and descended upon the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, 2, now dwells in each and every Christian. Friend, if you placed your faith in Christ, you're not only known and loved by God, you are indwelt by the very Spirit of God. This is how you came to faith. God foreknew you, and so he sent his Spirit upon you to bring you to faith in him. Left unto ourselves, we are dead-hearted sinners who want nothing to do with God. Ephesians chapter 2 makes this about as clear as it can be. He says, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, there's one thing I know about dead people. Dead people don't make choices. They can't consider the right way to go. They're dead. And the dead are all equally dead. Unlike the Princess Bride, which talks about this category being mostly dead. Like, that doesn't exist. To be dead is to be dead. And according to God's word, we are all born as equally dead sinners. But praise be to God that the Holy Spirit of God can take our dead hearts and through the preaching of the good news of Jesus, resuscitate us. He puts the paddles of his power on our hearts and makes us beat for him. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, it is not because you have figured something out that no one else did. Friends, it is because the Spirit of God has awoken your heart. And again, I just want to pause here and not move on without appealing to people who have yet to put their faith in Christ. I believe there are things that you've been feeling or maybe spiritual questions that you've had. Maybe you've asked them out loud. Maybe you haven't. But friends, you are listening to this for a reason. God has placed his paddles on your heart and he is seeking to bring you back to life. Do not resist him, but come and place your faith in him. This is how we become exiles in this world. We are foreknown by God and he sends his spirit to awaken our hearts to believe and trust in Jesus and become part of his people. And this origin story is important to keep in mind when we are feeling the effects of living here in exile. We can go through hard things in this world. And I think our suffering can cause us to question, God, do you see me? God, do you know me? Do you love me? Why aren't you coming through for me? Life as an exile can be hard. It's so why we need to remember how we became exiles. It's not because God doesn't know us, it's because he has chosen to know us. Our origin story reminds us, I think as Kathleen Nelson so beautifully says, we experience this world, not as lost wandering orphans, but as chosen children heading home. Christians, that's who you are. A chosen child of God, For known by the Father, indwelt by the Spirit. This world wants to try to define you in all kinds of ways, but there is no one else and nothing else that defines you. This is your identity. Your job does not define you. Your net worth does not define you. Your relationship status does not define you. The number of your social media followers and likes do not define you. Your possessions, your house, your car, your stuff does not define you. Your appearance does not define you. Your past does not define you. Your critics do not define you. Your sins don't even define you. The God of the universe, the only one whose opinion really matters, says, I define you and I've chosen to define you as someone whom I love. Just let that sink in for a moment. Yes, God loves the world. But His love for you is a special love. It is a foreknowing love. It is a specific love. It is a love that saw you through the quarters of time and said, I'm going to bring them. I'm going to bring her. I'm going to bring Him. I'm going to bring them home. So I'm going to send the Spirit upon them to awaken their hearts because I'm not content to leave them dead in their sins, running as fast as they can to hell. I'm going to stop them in their tracks. And I'm going to bring them to me. Friends, this is who you are. You are a chosen child of God. And God can do whatever he wants. He's not obligated to do anything beyond his desires. This is what he's chosen to do. He has chosen to love you. He's chosen to dwell within you. You might have never felt wanted before, but you need to know today you are wanted by God. And so yes, we are in exile here, which at times means that we can experience suffering here. But we need to think about how we became exiles. It's not because we did something wrong that caused God to abandon us, but it is because God has chosen us, His set His affections upon us, and His Spirit now dwells within us. We're not abandoned, we're His. And here's why. Here's the purpose of God in all this. Here's, here's why we become exiles. Look at verse 2 one more time. We're made exiles according to the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit. That's how. And here's the four. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. We're chosen for a reason. A reason that has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with God. Right? We're chosen to Obey God. He he wants us so that we can come to live in obedience to him. Now, I think in our anti-authorian culture, obedience can sound like a really dirty word sometimes. Um, We we just have this assumption that that all authority is some kind of unjust power play. Now, there certainly can be abuses of authority, and, and obedience can be wrongly leveraged for evil purposes, as people can be manipulated and power dynamics do certainly exist in our broken world but what this passage is telling us is that the god who made us and who loves us he wants what is best for us and so since he is the god who made us and loves us and who knows everything he knows what is best and so in his love he calls us to obey his voice i ask my kids to obey me not because i'm on some kind of power trip but because my kids would be dead in about three minutes if they didn't follow our rules. We have rules that we ask them to obey for their good. It would be a lot easier to not have rules and just let kids do whatever they want. A whole lot easier. But I love them. And so I want what is best for them. And so I ask for obedience from them. And that's just me and my finite, flawed father's heart. How much more so must our heavenly Father, who knows everything and who loves us more than we can fathom, how much more is He the one who's calling us out to obedience out of His love? Friends, God loves us too much to always give us what we want. He loves us too much to let us just be true to ourselves and our feelings and what we think about ourselves and who we are. He loves us too much for that. I don't care how you feel about things. I know what is best for you, and so I'm calling you to obey my voice. He, he loves us so much that he wants to train us for what is best for us in every aspect of our lives, which might lead sometimes, should I scratch that, it will lead many times to us feeling challenged. Right? We should not expect to always agree with God. I mean, if, if, we, if we are always agreeing with God, if we read the Bible and everything that we, we're reading here lines up with what we already think, I don't think we're actually honestly reading the Bible. Because if, if God's always agreeing with you, then who is really God in that situation? God does not exist to affirm us. We exist to obey him. God's made us his children, and because he loves us, he wants to know the good of obedience to him. And let me tell you, I've made many decisions in my life that I've regretted. None of them have come from obeying God. And even when I don't obey but make the choice to disobey, looking back, I'm like, yeah, God, you were right. (laughs) I was wrong. Friends, obedience is a blessing. And and as we obey, we we are honoring God. We're saying to God, you are better than me, and so your way is better than mine. Obedience is part of how we worship how we declare God's great worth and value. And listen, we can say whatever we want about loving God, but it's our obedience to God that really shows where our hearts are at. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. How we know whether we love God is not because we said some kind of prayer when we were five, it's because we're obeying him now, hopefully, when we're 35 and 65. We honor God with our obedience, and through our obedience... We bear witness to the world. We are declaring to this world, as the hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You want to know how much Jesus is worth to me? I'm not just going to tell you about him, I'm going to show you by how I choose to live for him. Obedience honors God, and obedience bears witness to the world, and God made us his children so that we could honor him in such a way and know the blessing of that and so that we could bear witness to the world and know the purpose of that as well. But he doesn't just make us exiles so we can obey him. It says he also does this so that we can be sprinkled with Christ's blood. God does not only want us to know him as creator, but also as our saviour. For the life of sin that we live, the wrongs that we do, we owe a penalty of death to the God who gave us life. But Jesus came to give his life for ours. He is the chosen one who God says in verse 23, just give you a little sneak preview, verse 23 of chapter 1 says that Jesus was foreknown by God. See, the Father made a choice to send his Son to be the chosen one to bear our sins. And so Jesus came in exile. He was not part of this world, but he came to this world. And he came according to the foreknowledge of the Father and the power of the Spirit to give his blood on our behalf. And his blood does not just clean up our old life. No, his blood makes us completely new people. Friends, if you've placed your faith in Christ, then God no longer looks on you and the wrongs that you still continue to do and counts them against you. No, he sees you as a new person forever washed clean by the blood of Jesus. I believe someone needs to hear this today. You need to hear today that you are clean. You need to hear today that you are forgiven. You need to hear today that you can't dirty yourself again. It doesn't matter how many times you fail and fall, You have a Savior whose blood has paid it all. And God, yes, He he wants you to obey Him. And He wants you to bear witness about Him. But you're not accepted into heaven because you're sprinkled by your obedience. You're accepted into heaven because you have been washed in Jesus' blood. You might not always feel forgiven. You might still feel dirty. You might still carry shame but your salvation is not determined by what you feel, but by what Jesus has done. We're not saved because we feel saved. We're saved because Jesus paid it all. And so as we come to a close, friends, if you place your faith in Jesus, then while you are a stranger to this world, you are a child of God. You are known by the Father, made alive by the Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of the Son. Our triune God, the glorious three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see Him right here in these opening verses, working together in perfect harmony to make us His chosen children. Giving us an identity and a purpose. The identity of being elect exile and the purpose of being obedient to him, to honor him, and to bear witness to the world. This is what we're to be about. But by the riches of God's grace, we are no longer from this place. This is meant to give us comfort in our sufferings, and this is meant to give us purpose for our lives. As we embrace our identity as exiles in this world, chosen children of God, sent here to make this world a better place, but chosen children of God who are only passing through this place as we head home to our Father. Let's bow our heads in prayer.